Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we visit with David Joy, author of When These Mountains Burn and other novels. The Charlotte Observer calls David a remarkably gifted storyteller. Lee Smith, author of Guests on Earth, calls David's latest novel revelatory. Indelible characters from every side of the law converge in this fast-moving story as fine a piece of writing as you are ever likely to encounter. Joe R. Lansdale, author of The Elephant of Surprise, says, This is the sort of novel I love. No worldwide conspiracies or super crimes, just flawed folks making bad choices and having to live with the deadly consequences. David Joy has quickly become one of my favorite authors in the tradition of such fine novelists as Larry Brown and William Gay. Highly recommended. We start the show with David reading from the beginning of the book, where we meet Raymond Mathis, a man alone in a world where the mountains are burning. Rain bled over the dusty windshield. Raymond Mathis wrung the steering wheel in his fist, trying to remember if there was anything left worth taking. The front door of his house stood open, and from the driveway, he knew who'd broken in. Fact was, if it wasn't nailed down, it was already gone. What pawned easily went first, and now the boy stole anything that looked like it might hold any value at all. Across the yard, the last array's dogs bawled from the kennel. There'd been a time when he bred the best squirrel and coon dogs ever to come out of Jackson County, a line of black and tan mountain feist that'd tree anything that climbed. He'd raised beagles to run rabbits through bramble back before outsiders riddled the land with no trespassing signs, and this was the last of them, a lean bitch named Tommy Tuton, who was grayed in the face and shook on her hind legs as she balanced against bowed chicken wire. Crossing the yard, Ray was thankful the boy had at least put the dog up this time. The hound was old and blind, but hadn't lost her nose. Earlier that summer, the boy had broken in, left the door standing wide, and Tommy was gone nearly a week before Ray found her two coves over, panting and hobbling, half-starved down the road, having chased God knows what through the night. A dog gets on a scent, and there's no turning back. And in that way, dogs and men aren't that different. 
Ray didn't blame Tommy like he didn't blame the boy. Both were after something they had no business chasing, but he understood how a single thought could enter a man's mind and absolutely consume him. You ready for supper, Ray said as he slid the barrel bolt back on the door. The bones of the five-stall kennel had weathered gray but were still as solid as the day he framed them. Rain slid off the back of the tin roof and seeped into the ground as quickly as it fell. The hound howled melancholic and lonesome as if she hadn't seen a soul in years. When the door swung open, she trotted through the yard and into the house, then shook herself dry with ears slapping jowls. This was the first rain to touch the mountain in months. The ground was so dry that stopping there in the yard, Raymond could almost hear the earth lapping at what fell, trying to wet its mouth enough to stave off dying of thirst. The ridges were burning and the air smelled of smoke and there was no front in the forecast. Ray figured this little spell was just a cruel joke. Still, he stood there staring up into the sky, letting the drops beat against his eyelids while he prayed the shower along. Hey listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, we will send you a a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. And now, here's a little bit more about the author, followed by our conversation, more readings, and our writing life discussion. I hope you enjoy. David Joy is the author of The Line That Held Us, winner of the 2018 SEBA Book Prize. The Weight of This World, and Where All Light Tends to Go, Edgar Finalist for Best First Novel. His stories and creative nonfiction have appeared in a number of publications, including New York Times Magazine and The Bitter Southerner, and he's the author of the memoir Growing Gills, A Fly Fisherman's Journey, and the co-editor for Gather at the River, 25 Authors on Fishing. David lives in Tuckasegee, North Carolina. David, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, congratulations on When These Mountains Burn. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, so what's it like uh, trying to release a book during the time of corona? Uh, It's been odd. I think it's been especially odd for me just given uh, how rural of a place I live in uh, and and the fact that I've, you know, traditionally my book tours have been fairly substantial. Uh, you know, that first book of mine, I, I went to, I think I went to 19 cities in 21 days. Uh, most of the other books have been anywhere from 10 to 15 cities. Uh, so, I, so I've had decently substantial tours and, and 
And so when the scramble kind of hit for publishing to figure out, you know, how you market and publicize a book, uh, you know, a couple months ago and everything kind of moved to a virtual book tour, I was at a, a big disadvantage in that, uh, I can't even answer phone calls at my house. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're, li- you're living deep in, in the mountains of Western North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a good phone call where I know I won't lose reception or to do something like this requires at least 30 minutes of travel. Uh, and, and so I don't have, inter- I don't have good internet at the, at the house. I've got satellite internet where I can basically get emails out, but I think, I mean, you run, I was doing a survey yesterday for the state, uh, that was about rural connectivity and, and kind of broadband as a, as a, you know, something that has to be expanded across the state. And it ran a test, a speed test while I was doing the survey and I was getting a little under two megabytes per second up and down. Uh, it was barely enough internet to even do the survey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming down the mountain, so to speak, to, uh, to, to connect with me here on Charlotte Rivers podcast today. I, and actually while I was waiting, David, for us to connect in, in the green room here for this, uh, I was just scrolling through Facebook and saw a post you'd put up, uh, about your local independent bookstore, uh, which I think is uh, what City Lights Bookstore, and you said they're two miles down the road and just across the pasture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, well, Chris, the owner, <laughs> the owner lives. Uh, yeah, two miles down the road. Yeah, I like the way you describe. You know, that's how you describe getting around. Well, you go get two down the miles road, it's just across the pasture. Yep, yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> uh, and, and speaking of setting, let's talk setting for just a moment, because you told me that you lived half your life in Charlotte uh, or in the Charlotte area, uh, and the other half of your life. Uh, has been in Western North Carolina, uh, and you've lived in Jackson County in particular, and in more particular, Tuckasegee, uh, North Carolina, one of the many unincorporated areas that you'll find in that area. And I think part of the Cherokee Reservation dips into Jackson County too. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We border the boundary. That's okay. great. So tell us a little bit about your home of uh, Tuckasegee, uh, the beauty of the place, at least to you, and why you live there, and a little bit about its culture. Yeah, I think um... – you know, I, th- I think when people think about Appalachia in general, uh, their concept of Appalachia is very limited to uh, eastern Kentucky and West Virginia. Uh, you know, they're thinking coal country. Uh, people here, we don't know anything about coal. Uh, you know, we never had had that. Uh, we had timber, which I think was was similar um, exploitation. But, I, but uh, you know, people here don't know anything about coal. This isn't coal country. Uh, so then if you say you live in the mountains of North Carolina, they say, oh, you live in Asheville. Uh, and I live about uh, close to two hours west of Asheville. Most people don't even know there is there is anything west of Asheville. Well, yeah, I know. It's like there's a lot west of Asheville. It's like uh, you just keep driving and keep driving and keep driving. You're down in that lower left-hand corner of North Carolina, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, J- Jackson County borders South Carolina, uh, and we kind of sit right there against uh, South Carolina, and and uh, we don't touch Georgia, but if you were to go down into Macon, which is neighboring county, you would shoot down into Georgia from there. Um, but so, yeah, we're southern, uh, the southern part of, uh, of that kind of mountain range in North Carolina. As far as what it looks like, uh, Jackson County is kind of has uh, 
some really extreme terrain features. I mean, we, we've got the plot balsams, which is the highest point on the Blue Ridge Parkway, uh, whereas there's a whole lot of agricultural land in neighboring counties like, say, Haywood or Macon. Uh, there's a lot less agricultural land here, and, and, and part of that is is just the terrain. Uh, we've never, you know, that that wasn't really something that people could could do here. Uh, as far as um, you know, industry that that used to exist here, uh, it was timber. You know, we we had a paper like most places. We had a paper mill. Uh, that paper mill now does basically does recycling, um, but it's still there. But it but it doesn't make paper anymore uh and as far as kind of what that economy looks like now uh to be honest it's it's solely uh, a tourist-based economy uh, we have a university here that's where i'm sitting right now i'm i'm in Cullowee at uh western carolina university somebody's let me use their office but so we have a university um as far as tuckasegee tuckasegee is uh if you headed south out of if if you are familiar with jackson county if you headed south out of Cullowee, you'd kind of enter Caney Fork, and then you'd enter Tuckasegee, and then if you went on past Tuckasegee, you'd hit Glenville, and then you'd hit Cashers, which a lot of people are familiar with Cashers. Um, in Tuckasegee, if you if you take a left on 281 and you kind of ride out like you're headed back towards Brevard or Balsam Grove, you enter an area called Little Canada, and that's really where I live is in Little Canada. Uh, and it's an incredibly... Uh, rural place uh we've we recently got a dollar general uh so <laughs> so i can run i can make beer runs now but uh, you're, you're 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 saying you reached the big time now right oh yeah yeah and a lot <laughs> so, of and a, a lot of people you know look down on that but what they don't understand is that if you lived in the there are places in little canada where you had to drive over an hour either direction to go to a store to get milk I mean, there there was literal there was literally nothing. So, uh, as as kind of comical as it is for a lot of people, it's it's been great for <laughs> great yeah. for us to be able yeah. to run down there. So, where would Ray Mathis, the character in the opening scene, where would he be in Jackson County? He he lives up in an area called Worry Hut, uh, and Worry Hut is on the is kind of on the backside of Western Carolina University's campus, uh, and it's kind of a as far as mountains go, it connects kind of directly to Caney Fork, uh, but but kind of gets you back towards 107. And, and Worry Hut's one of them funny places that uh, the way it's spelled is not the way you pronounce it. And so and so, you know, if you was to look at the sign, you would say the average person would probably try to pronounce it Way Hutta. Uh, but but you know, it's, to anybody that's from around here, it's Worry Hut. Well, what a great name, and also a great name with the dog in the opening scene, Tommy Tuton. Did uh, where did that inspiration come from? Uh, hunting dog, hunting dogs usually got. Uh, you know, it's rare that a hunting dog has a name as simple as uh, Sam or as simple as Charlie, uh, and and part of that is because you're talking about owning you know twelve, fifteen dogs at a time. And those 12 or 15 dogs came from another 12 or 15 dogs. And so if you just named them something simple, I think you'd run out of names real fast. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So one of, the rec uh, one of the recreational amenities in your area is fly fishing. Jackson County advertises, you know, a lot about how it's sort of the fly fishing capital of the world. It, it talks about it's the head of the trail for the Tuckasegee River. 
some 50 miles, which they call the tuck. I've not fished it. I fish up in the high country uh, and really enjoy it there. But you actually wrote two books about fly fishing. One, a memoir, Growing Gills, A Fly Fisherman's Journey. And you co-edited for Gather at the River, 25 Authors on Fishing. So here's a question you're probably not going to get on your interview blitz here. How has your journey as a fly fisherman been similar to or different than your journey as an author? Uh, I think I was a lot better. I've always been uh, more naturally gifted for fishing. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, from the time I was very little, uh, everybody in my family fished. I mean, that, that's, you know, when we would get together at church on Sundays, it, the conversation always eventually led to fishing. Uh, you know, my whole life. Uh, and I, I grew up, uh, I grew up in Charlotte, but I grew up against a, uh, a cattle farm. And there was a, there was a farm pond there that I, that I fished literally every day of my childhood, uh, started fly fishing. I was probably, uh, nine or 10, somewhere around there. Um, I'd never fished for trout until I, until I moved here. But yeah, I think, um, there are very few things that I'll say I'm good at. Uh, but I'll always say I'm good at, at fishing. Uh, I, I mean, I, you know, if you give me, if you give me a rod, I'll, I'll catch fish wherever we are. It, it don't really matter to me. Um, versus writing has taken a, a whole hell of a lot more, uh, <laughs> determination and, and, uh, failure. Well, I, I suppose you could say I, I practiced law for many years and they call it the practice of law for a reason. You're still learning. Fly fishing is the same way. You're always learning something new. And I, I assume as a writer, you ascribe to the notion that you're always learning something new as a writer as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, well, I think, I think the other thing too is, um, is you never learn it. Uh, every time you sit down to write a book, uh, it's as if you've, you've never written a word in your life. Um, and, and I, that's different for different people as well. There are writers who write every day and I've never, I've never been one of those writers. Uh, you know, I remember a, old Raymond Carver interview where, where he, he, he writes very similar to me in that he never wrote every day, but he said, uh, when I'm not writing, he said, uh, you know, when my life's filled up with these other things, he says, it feels as if I've never written a word a day in my life. And that's absolutely accurate. Um, and so I think every time, you know, you have to learn it over. That's, that's the difference. Uh, you know, the, every story is entirely different. Every, the process itself constantly changes. So it would be similar to like if, if uh, you know, you had spent years and years learning how to fly fish and now I took a fly rod away from you and I handed you, you know, a stick and spider web and said, all right, <laughs> let's, go, let's go stick some fish. I, I don't know. I think I could just say the next time I go out to the stream, the water looks different than it did last week. And all of a sudden the fish aren't in the same place they were. And I got to figure out some other way to, to yeah. catch them, you know? Yeah. So that, uh, well, let's talk, let's talk drugs for just a minute, uh, David, because drugs figure prominently in this story. Um, you know, metaphorically the mountains, uh, are burning partly because of the drug trade that's in the area. But in your debut novel, David, uh, where all the light tends to go, which was an Edgar finalist uh, for best first novel, uh, you were dealing with methamphetamines, and uh, your characters are caught up in the in the meth trade. Um, in your second novel, The Way to the World, your characters had to deal with the accidental death of a drug dealer, and then they get caught up in the, this meth fueled journey. 
Your third novel deals more with vengeance, but then you're back again in this fourth book with uh, a different kind of drug, heroin. And I'm just wondering, um, why have you been so driven to spend much of your writing energy tackling this topic of drugs in a mountain community? Well, I think largely it's it's because uh, that's something that I understand. Uh, you know, I growing up where I where I grew up, I was surrounded by drugs all my life. I was surrounded by addicts all my life. Uh, you know, I in a lot of ways uh, was if if I wasn't an addict, I was I was damn close. Uh, and kind of just one or two decisions away from away from uh, putting myself in in some really bad spots. Um, but so I think, I think it's something that I genuinely understand. Uh, and I think that's something that's been really nice about, uh, about some readers is, is if they know that experience, they recognize that I get it. Uh, I, I think about this novel, there's a scene early on where, uh, where Denny Rattler is, is, uh, at his car where he's basically been living out of his car and, uh, and uses and and my editor made an argument to cut the end of that chapter, which is which is a moment where we see him use. And uh, I was very adamant about keeping it. And part of the reason that I wanted to keep it was because I knew for a fact how accurate it was. And I knew for a fact that that early on in a book, if I have if I have a reader who's experienced something similar, they're going to realize that I get it. And so if nobody else does, uh, that, that matters to me. Uh, so so David, did you feel, you said you had that experience. Did you feel in your own life, the despair that, um, I, I saw coming off of the pages of this book and the characters that could not figure out a way to get out of the problem they'd gotten themselves into? What I, I think, uh, you know, the other thing is that I'm typically writing about, uh, poverty as it relates to addiction. And, I, and I've talked about this uh, a lot before, but I think some, one thing that some people don't understand uh, is like, uh, if you've got $10 in your pocket, uh, $10 doesn't keep the lights on, $10 doesn't get you health insurance, $10 doesn't make a car payment, $10 ain't going to feed you. Uh, but $10 is enough to take you out of this world for 30 minutes to an hour. Uh, and that, that's the, that's the inignorable truth of every addict I've ever known is that they were looking for a brief, a brief moment of reprieve, uh, you know, where they could experience just one short lived moment where they can catch their breath. And so for most of the writers, I mean, for most of the characters that I'm writing about, uh, I think that's the reality. Uh, I think that's definitely the reality of a character like Denny in this, in this novel. Do you remember um, what first set this story in motion in your mind and where you were at the time? You said you you have these gaps in your writing. Are you constantly thinking about maybe the next story? And do you remember where this idea came to you? Yeah, well, yeah. I think uh, I think the way that writing works for me is that even when I'm not, you know, Silas House has said, and I think I think maybe he took this from James Steele, but he said, I, you know, I'm writing 24 hours a day. And what he meant by that was even when he's not physically writing, uh, his his brain is working a story. And I think for me, it's, that's very similar. Uh, so when I'm not physically writing a book, yeah, typically what happens is that a story's developing, a character's developing. I'll catch tiny bits of scene 
you know, I was just the other day, I, the novel I'm working on, uh, I, this scene just kind of just arrives out of nowhere. And so for me, that's how, how it works. As far as this novel, though, uh, When These Mountains Burn, it was um, part of it was was uh, was rooted in, in truth in that I knew a man up here whose whose son had gotten very, very deep into uh into addiction and owed a great deal of money and he told me a story about literally going and buying his son's life back uh i mean he told me a story about riding up the mountain with a shotgun in the passenger seat and ten thousand dollars in cash and buying his son's life back uh, and and so i t i think as a lot of writers and artists do you t you know Hemingway said you start with that one true sentence, and I think a, a lot of times a story kind of evolves that way. You start with one tiny fragment of truth, and then you and then you let it uh, kind of blossom into into something else. Yeah, and that and that's I'm not giving anything away here because that's early in the book as part of the inciting incident. Uh, Ray Mathis, uh, who you read about in the first scene, he's a man who keeps bailing his addicted son out. Uh, his wife has passed on. He's had enough of the drug trade. Uh, he's the kind of man who's going to take matters into his own hands if he doesn't think the law can keep up. And that's exactly what he does early in the book is he tries to go bail his son out uh, with, you know, a gun and a load of money. I think it was $10,000. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you kind of stuck to that story, and that just led, led you on. Well, um, next character, you mentioned him earlier, Denny, uh, which this is going to set up our next read here. Um, Tell us about Denny and, and tell us about this scene that you're going to read uh, where he's uh, where he comes into the book early on. Yeah. So, so Denny is a first and foremost, he's, he's a native character. He's a, you know, he's a enrolled member of the Eastern band of Cherokee Indian uh, grew up on, on the boundary. Um, and, and he even, uh, you know, at, at points, uh, in the story kind of alludes to this, but he feels like an American cliche in that, uh, he was injured at work. Uh, they prescribed him opioids and, and he found it, he kind of found his way into, uh, heroin. Um, and I, you know, that is, that is an American cliche at this point. Denny's a hand to mouth heroin addict. Uh, so pretty much his entire existence is, is, uh, is, there is no, uh, there is no seeing further than the next day. Uh, you know, he's, he's absolutely just, just trying to get to the next day. So we got a scene here, David, where, uh, Denny has been out, he's breaking into places, trying to get his enough money for his next fix. And he's going to show up, uh, to this place called the outlet mall. Tell us about the outlet mall. Yeah, it's just kind of a, it's a, it's a clump of trailers. That's, uh, kind of a drug ring is moving through this entire little, uh, you know, park of trailers and, and, uh, basically you go into one, get one thing, go into another, get, get whatever else. Uh, but it's just right. kind of the hub, the hub of, uh, of the drug trade on the boundary. All right. We'll pick it up anytime you're ready. Junkies called the clump of trailers, the outlet mall. Didn't much matter what you were looking for. This was where you found it. Horse was sold out of the single wide with the green plastic roof over the porch, crystal in the one with the trump flag hanging in the window like a curtain. 
sometimes they'd bring a load of Mexican gals in and they'd work out of the old 70s model charger with orange trim for $100 a turn. But the girls hadn't been there in a while from what Denny'd seen and he came often enough to know. Soon as he opened the front door, Jonah Rathbone reached into the couch cushions and came out with a 357 mag that he rested on his knee like a baby. Jonah wore a pair of cut-off jeans and a faded white tank top with the words Myrtle Beach airbrushed fluorescent on the front. He was leaned so far back on the couch that his ass was hovering off the front of the cushion. A lanky white girl was curled on the far end of the sofa, her legs hugged to her chest inside a black t-shirt. Her eyes were haloed by shadow, barely open, and she was swaying back and forth, staring at the floor, oblivious the earth was turning. Dang, Danny, you ever think about knocking? Jonah swallowed hard and slicked his fingers back through the sides of his hair. The full-framed revolver rested on his knee, and Denny couldn't turn his eyes from its engraved frame. Picking the gun back up, Jonah twirled the heavy Ruger loosely by its trigger guard, the gun spinning a tilt-a-whirl orbit around his finger. What sort of worthless shit you bring today? Denny came into the room and set his offering on a heavy iron-framed coffee table in front of the couch. He laid the shotgun down first, then stretched the sterling necklace in a straight line parallel in the barrel. Oh, and I got this, he said, fishing around in the pocket of his jeans for the cell phone. When you gonna start stealing something worth having? That gun's worth a hundred and fifty all day long, Denny said. That and that necklace and this phone, I'd say you give me at least two fifty. Jonah tossed the revolver casually between him and the girl. He stretched for the shotgun and looked it over in his hands, shouldered the twelve gauge and aimed the muzzle at Denny's belly button. After checking the barrel stamp, he set the gun back where he'd found it. And Ivor Johnson, Denny, what the fuck you want me to do with this? When you gonna bring something I can sell, a Benelli, hell, a Mossberg, anything? That gun and this phone, that's easy money, Denny said. That's an easy 250. Every time it was the same old game, Denny trying to talk him up and Jonah trying to dicker him down. Thing about it was, Jonah held all the power. He knew Denny wasn't gonna go to a pawn shop and he knew he wasn't leaving without the dope. Jonah reached for the necklace and checked the clasp. He shook his head, wadded the thin hair and bone chain up like string, and chucked it at the girl at the end of the couch. So, David, he's uh, he's out there stealing. Uh, he's he's coming in. He's trying to get you know somewhere between one hundred and fifty and two hundred bucks, maybe. And uh, how fast is he going to blow through that? At this point, it, it, uh, you know, he's looking. It's like ten dollars a stamp, ten stamps to a bundle, so a hundred dollars for for ten stamps. Uh, and and he's basically using a, a stamp a day. Uh, so so a hundred hundred dollars is could potentially last him a week and a half. Yeah, and if he doesn't if he doesn't continue to use the, and you explore this in the book, the withdrawals are pretty painful. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think a lot of times uh, that that's one of the biggest issues uh, with with heroin addiction specifically is that is that the withdrawals are uh damn near worse than dying uh you know and and so a lot of times even if even if uh even if you have the desire to get clean uh if you don't have resources at your disposal to help you get over that hill uh regardless eventually you're going to break down and you're going to use just to stave off those those withdrawal symptoms now you mentioned that it's sort of a cliche, um, 
you know, members of the uh, Indian nation using and others in the mountain community using different kinds of drugs. But what's the current state of the problem? Uh, well, I think I think our problem is is uh, kind of at a pinnacle. Um, here in this part of Appalachia, we we tend to be uh, kind of behind the curve on everything. So so when it was methamphetamine, for instance, methamphetamine didn't really take hold here until you know maybe five years after uh, it was destroying lots of other places. And the same thing here with with heroin. Uh, you know, I think whereas. Um, Whereas a lot of communities were were seeing, uh, you know, in, you know, just devastating use five years ago, I think we're kind of uh, we're at the pinnacle right this minute. Um, you know, there's there's more going on right this second than I think there ever has been. All right, so hey, listeners, uh, we're going to take a short uh, break. Not long. When we come back, we're going to actually dive a little bit into the plot. We're going to meet the uh, the other side, which is the uh, undercover forces that uh, are at work trying to, to stop the drug trade. We're going to do the Riding Life segment. We've got something uh, uh, real quick to end the episode, so please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community, and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast. Uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way, and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes, uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond uh, in all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network, 
It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, I'm back with uh, David Joy. We're talking about his book, When These Mountains Burn. Uh, David, the cover, uh, it's got a lot of fire on it. Yeah. 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 Do you like the cover? I do. Yeah, I do. I I think, uh, I think especially the last three covers I've really liked. I think early on, uh, they, the covers were real dark and they were a lot more, uh, uh, commercial versus the past three covers. Uh, those being the paperback of the way to this world, uh, the cover for the line that held us. And now this cover I think are, are, uh, a lot more literary, uh, and I kind of like that shift. And we, we've talked a lot about drugs so far. Uh, we haven't talked about the mountains actually burning, but that is a problem in, in the mountain area when the timber is so dry. Is that a problem these days in uh, Western North Carolina? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, a, and, and, and truthfully, it's always going to be a problem, uh, until we start to manage our, our forests, uh, better, you know, there, there's basically, there hasn't, uh, been much management at all. Uh, but, but, also, this this novel is set very specifically in 2016 when that was the reality. Uh, you know that f- for months on end uh, we experienced devastating fires. Uh, you know, I, I think from a national standpoint, uh, probably most people are familiar with what happened to Gatlinburg, uh, for instance. Well, that was kind of the tail end of it. It had been going on for months. Uh, it had kind of been going on all the way back to back to early October, late September. Uh, and, and so, so I don't think that that was a, a, a one-time reality. I, I, I think truthfully, uh, you know, we will inevitably experience another year like that. Um, this year has been in, incredibly wet. There's not a day that's gone by that it hadn't rained, but, uh, you know, as, as climate change continues to bring these extreme weather patterns, I think you're going to have one or the other, you're going to have really wet years and then you're going to have years where you don't have any rain at all. And on those years, uh, you know, these mountains are nothing but a but a mismanaged tinderbox. So the people in Western North Carolina believe in climate change. This this person in Western North Carolina <laughs> does. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's kind of like anything else. Uh, it yeah. depends on who you talk to. Uh, yeah. This this place is definitely not one way or the other. Okay, so all right, so we we got a number of characters in this book. We've talked about Ray. We've talked about Denny. Um, they're all suffering in some way. Ray is suffering. Uh, he's lost his wife. He's trying to deal with the son who's an addict. Uh, Denny's suffering because he's actually going through the experience of being an addict. Uh, but the cops aren't immune either from uh, sort of an emotional trauma of dealing with the drug trade. And there's an undercover cop, a fellow named Rodriguez, who's uh, uh, in this book. Tell us about him because he plays an important part in the book too. Yeah, so Rodriguez is kind of uh... – he's kind of the lead undercover DEA agent, uh, in this part of, uh, Western North Carolina. Uh, everything's kind of being moved out of the main office in Atlanta, but, uh, Rodriguez has kind of been put in charge of, of, uh, looking into how heroin and opioids are, are moving through Western North Carolina. Uh, and I, th- I think things, he's still a young officer, uh, which is to say that I don't think he's detached himself completely in the way that veteran officers so often do. 
which is to say, too, that things are still really personal for him. Uh, and I think it would be really hard uh, when you're looking at this, when you're looking at something like uh, the opioid epidemic, uh, for it not to be personal when, when uh, you know, you're constantly stacking up bodies. I mean, every single day, uh, you know, just down the road from me, we could we could ride down to over into Haywood and you get off the exit, uh, go to the tractor supply. And there's a big sign there where they're keeping up with it. Overdoses per month, deaths per year. Uh, and it and it rises every every trip. Uh, and I think when you're dealing with that, when you're dealing with that scale of death, uh, it's impossible for it not to not to be personal. So this scene you're going to read now um, is pretty dialogue heavy, and it's, it's got a little humor in it too. It's but he's trying to embed himself in the community, and one way he does that is to to get uh, arrested and uh, uh, strike up a conversation with the local. So I'm going to have you read read that, uh, starting on page 65. With uh, he was in a holding cell. He was in a holding cell with some horse-faced white man with spiky hair who was in his mid to late 30s but trying to look much younger. The man's eyes were too close together and his mouth hung open like he was either stoned or dumb as a fence post. He strutted over and inspected Rodriguez from top to bottom as soon as the deputies closed the door. You Cherokee? No, I'm not Cherokee. Must be Mexican then. My parents are Venezuelan. That's what I said. Mexico and Venezuela are two different countries. You like tacos? Yeah, I like tacos. Well, all right then, Rodriguez laughed. My name's Chivas, but nobody calls me that. What do they call you? Everybody calls me Rudolph. That's your last name? No. So why do they call you that? On account of I'm from Murphy. I don't get it. Like Eric Rudolph, Rodriguez shook his head. You don't know who Eric Rudolph is? Blew up a bunch of abortion clinics or something? I don't know. Anyhow, he hid out in the woods for years, and then one day he got caught digging around in a trash can back behind the save-a-lot. Okay. It was in Murphy. The save-a-lot was. Sure as shit you heard, Eric Rudolph. No. What's your name? Rodriguez. I get it now. Get what? That you're a Mexican, not an Indian? I'm not Mexican. Then what are you? American. I was born in America. Yeah, and I'm Eric Rudolph. The man walked over and took a seat on a concrete bench that lined one wall. He rested his elbows on his knees, dirty jeans with seams cut at the ankles so the denim hung over his sneakers. He'd lost his hair up front, his forehead tall and shiny as polished marble. The man dropped his head and his hair jabbed out all over like a porcupine. What'd they pick you up for, Rodriguez tried to keep him talking, shoplifting. What'd you steal, a coyote tail? Rodriguez laughed, but the man kept that dumbass look about his face like he was serious as a heart attack. I swear, hand to God, I was at Uncle Bill's flea market, and this woman was selling all kinds of skulls and shit, possums, deers. She even had to hide off a raccoon. Looked about like she'd scraped it off the side of the highway with a shovel. She had this little coffee can, and it was filled up with coyote tails. So why in the fuck did you steal that? I don't know. I just wanted one, I guess. A coyote tail, yeah, Rudolph said. What about you? I passed out in a gas station. That ain't a crime. I was fucked up. Drunk? No, I had a bag on me. So they got you for possession? Yeah, possession. <laughs> so, did you have fun writing that scene, David? Yeah, and, and it, well, and as funny as it is, uh, as comical as it is to read it, uh, the, the sad reality is that is that that's the truth for a vast majority of Americans. Uh, you know, uh, it's like if you came from, 
if if you came from south of the border, it don't matter if you're Colombian, Venezuelan, uh, you know, Honduran, it doesn't matter. You're Mexican. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's do this. Let's do the writing life for just a second, uh, David. You, you can sometimes tell something about a writer's life uh, by who supports them. And a good way to tell that is by peeking at the dedication and also the acknowledgments. And you dedicate this book to Ron Rash, a best-selling novelist from that area, uh, who you describe as your mentor and friend. How has Ron Rash helped guide your writing journey? Uh, well, I think I think the main thing was early on. He was he was kind of my first experience with with uh, what that what that looked like. Uh, you know, I don't have an MFA, whereas a, a lot of writers do, and so I didn't come out of some some you know elite writing program or something. What ultimately happened was I was here at Western Carolina, and I I was into literature but I was writing short stories and I had this teacher that I really liked uh, and respected. And I gave her a short story because I wanted to hear what she thought about it. And she looked at me and said, David, that's not what I do. Uh, but let me introduce you to somebody who does. And she took me next door and dumped me off in Ron's lap. Uh, and, and we just kind of hit it off. This was back before Ron was Ron in the sense that, you know, people were reading him, but not like they, this isn't post Serena Ron. I think maybe he had one foot in Eden out. Saints at the River might have been out. Uh, but anyways, he wasn't a household name at that point. Um, but to be honest, we hit it off over fishing, and that and that first the first story that he ever read of mine uh, was a story about fishing. It was called The Legend of Willie Simmons and the Uncatchable Fish. Uh, I got to read that. Where do I find that story? Oh, it's, it's in the garbage. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, it was a bad, uh, it was a shit story, but uh, <laughs> he was incredibly generous. Uh, and he, and he took me under his wing in a lot of ways. Uh, I think the two biggest influences he had on me was, um, he was the first person to ever hand me a book that I absolutely fell in love with. Uh, I didn't even know that you could do what, what this book did. And the minute I read it, it was like, that's what I do. Because uh, you're writing about my people. You're writing about my places. Uh, and that book was William Gaze. I hate to see that evening sun go down. Uh, and then the other way I think that Ron has really uh, impacted me is, is just uh, the absolute humility of him. Uh, I mean, the, the truth is that, uh, you know, and, and then this was in the New York Times this past week. They said he's one of the greatest living American writers. And I think that's absolutely accurate. I think it's especially accurate if, if you boil it down to short story writers. I think he, he, you could make an argument that he, he's the best short story writer alive uh, as far as an, America, an American writer. Um, but you wouldn't know that. Uh, from talking to him, then, uh, you know, there, there isn't an ounce of, uh, of ego to that man. Uh, he's always got time for people. Uh, he's always humble. And that, and that just boils down to where he comes from. Well, you, you had a good mentor there because I sense those same qualities, David, and you and talking with you, I feel like I could, you know, have a beer with you and, you know, we'd have a good time talking fishing, that kind of thing. Uh, in your acknowledgments, though, David, you thank Charlie Thomas, who goes by a number of names, as the best dog that walked the, the world. How did Charlie help you in your writing quest? Uh, well, and it, it, that's the bad part about coming down here to do this interview is I had to leave him. Cause, and, it's, and it's ultimately because it's too, it's too hot to leave him in the truck. Otherwise, I'd have brought him with me. Uh, 
But the reality is he's, he's around me from the moment I get up to the moment I go to bed. You know, I, I don't, uh, there's nowhere I go that Charlie doesn't go. And so, uh, the great thing as humans, we don't deserve the company of dogs. Uh, like we're not good enough, uh, to deserve that type of, uh, love. And, and it's just, uh, you know, I think there's not a day goes by that he doesn't, doesn't make me smile. And even at, you know, the worst, the worst days there are, it, it's, it's, uh, it don't take nothing to make that dog happy. Uh, <laughs> That's true. I've got a couple of rescue dogs that, uh, are, are a lot of fun. And, uh, which makes me think of a line you read in the opening scene, which is dogs and men aren't that much different. Yeah. And you believe that? Uh, in, in the sense of, uh, in the sense of the way that line is written, absolutely. In the sense that, you know, yesterday that dog got to sniffing a deer that was down in the garden and there wasn't no calling him back. <laughs> I mean, he was going down there. Uh, and I think, I think, you know, as humans, we're the same kind of way when, you know, especially people who are stubborn as I am, uh, you get something in your head and it's, it's, uh, you know, that's all there is. So tell me what's going on here in the acknowledgments where you uh, you thank the squirrel who jumped in your lap, you thank the yellow flickers who landed on the limb above you, the golden finches who filled the hickory like firework, and you thank Zero for bringing the jug and a host of colorful friends who passed it around the fire. Was that a particularly uh, enjoyable night? Yeah, yeah, but, that, <laughs> but I mean, that's, my, that's every fall too. What's funny to me though is like I can't remember, uh, I can't remember hardly, you know, drinking coffee this morning but when you when you say those lines i can see it uh like those moments in my life uh why have always amounted to the most valuable moments uh that i experience it and that's me in the woods i'm in the woods a whole hell of a lot more than i am uh in a building uh and i mean those that's three very specific incidents and those three incidents happened while i was writing this book's kind of the the point um you know they were they were my moments of brief reprieve uh to catch my breath but yeah i you know i'm very much governed uh and drawn to and and uh live for being outside yeah on your website you've got these three little panels one of them has you holding up a pen sort of facing the person who's looking at you and another one has you just holding your hands out and all you can see is your hands. Uh, are you kind of foreshadowing that part of your life is tied to the pen and to the hands that write these stories? Well, that's it. So those photographs actually came from a French photographer, and that's a photo project that he's been compiling for years, which is, uh, you know, there's a huge photography culture there. And, I mean, they're – the French are some of the most talented photographers I've ever seen. I, I follow a pile of them, uh, but they really, really love uh, photographing American authors. And this one in particular, that that was a project he he pulled together was that he wanted a, a super tight shot of a face. He wanted a picture of just the hands, and then he wanted a picture of uh, the person holding a pen. And, and he's, I don't know what he'll wind up doing with this. I think it would make a really incredible, uh, you know, photography book uh, to have all of that. But that's where that came from. Yeah, it looks like the middle picture, you're in a hat. You're always in a hat. But in the hat, it looks like there was a fly stuck in it. So in case you need a hump. Yeah. 
A humpy <laughs> was the fly that stuck in that hat. Okay, good. That answers that question. Uh, all right, just a couple more, and then we'll do the final reading. Um, you're now 30, about 36 years old. You've had good success as a writer. Um, anything you would have done differently in your journey as a writer, thinking back on it? Uh, no, because I, th- I, th- I think it's all worked out. But I, I think I do go back and look, especially at, at growing gills. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I can't stand to even look at that book. Uh, and that's, and that's kind of true of, of even some of the earlier novels. Uh, there are things that I can recognize that I was doing well, but, uh, you know, I think you're always, uh, if you're evolving as a writer, which is the hope, uh, and if, if the scope is continuing to expand, uh, and there's growth, then I think you're always going to look back on some of that earlier work and think that maybe it's not all that it could have been. Uh, and, and, and so there's that, but, but really, no, there's not a, not a whole lot I'd change. Yeah, I agree with that in writing too, um, having written some myself and also as a podcaster, I don't want to go back and look at how I ask questions in those early yeah. inter- interviews. But uh, so is there one thing you might tell your younger writing self that uh, you've learned along the way that if your younger writing self had known it, uh, it might've made a, made a difference in your. Yeah, in your- yeah, absolutely. I think it's the trust process. Um, you know, you have all these people all the time, writers giving writing advice and they're, and they're listing these things off as rules. And I think as Americans, we tend to like things that uh, add up like an equation. And so when people ask questions, they get the answer to A, they get the answer to B, they get to C, then it's A plus B plus C equals writer. Uh, and the reality is that that just, that's not how it works. Um, and so Early on, I, th- I think a lot of what I heard was that you need to write every day. You need to write every day. And then, uh, you know, looking at Ron, Ron writes every day. And back then he was very methodical. Uh, and I saw it, you know, he sat down at the desk every day. And back then he had, he drank a giant ass cup of sweet tea. And that was always off to the left because he's left handed. But everything had its place. And when it had its place, he sat and he wrote. And I've never functioned like that. And so for a long time, I felt really inadequate. Uh, and then kind of I stumbled onto those Raymond Carver interviews. And, I, and you know, as I started to have a little bit more success uh, and I started to look back on, on kind of how those stories came about, I, I think I started to trust myself a lot more that uh, this is how I, I work. You know, I'm not going to write every day. There might be a year I don't write. There might be, two, there, I don't know, there might be two years or 10 years that I don't write. Uh, but I think absolutely, uh, because of the way my brain's geared, eventually there's going to be a story takes hold. And, and when that story takes hold, I, you know, it's going to be, you know, what John Asbury called the paddle wheel of days, uh, you know, just one day dovetailing into the next. Do you ever, uh, write with one of those beverages you pick up at the dollar general beside you? <laughs> Sometimes, but, I, uh, it's probably better if I stay clear-headed. <laughs> I ain't got that much to work with anyway, so I, I probably need to stay clear-headed. All right, that's good. we got a final read here, uh, Dave. One of the things you do in this book, you talk about the fact that the world is changing. There's been a lot of changes. You mentioned this to me, particularly with the Cherokee community, how years ago um, there was you know more trinkets and more pretending about you know the Native American culture and that maybe some of that's changing for the better. Um, but, but Ray Mathis is worried about the world changing around him in other ways. Uh, speak to both of those real quick and then we'll set up this final read. Yeah. I, th- I think largely what I was trying to do with this novel was juxtapose two 
realities, and one was uh, the response to an opioid crisis. So how, for instance, Jackson County is responding to that crisis versus how the tribe is responding to it on the boundary. And then the other aspect is exactly what you're talking about, and it's that Raymond Mathis uh, feels that he is witnessing uh, the last blink of, of the culture he's tied to. Uh, and, and I wholeheartedly kind of agree. And I believe that we're within a generation or two of, of the extinction of that culture versus, uh, the tribe has been, uh, you know, if you go back and look at the past couple of decades, you've kind of got a pre-casino reality and a post-casino reality. And one thing that they've done incredibly well is to invest in, uh, their community and to uh you know try to try to bring a lot of the culture that was on the brink of extinction back to life uh if you go back 25 years uh the cherokee language was on the brink of extinction and now you've got children being raised as native speakers uh you ride you ride over there over the boundary and, and go into cherokee now and you don't see that that rubber tomahawk uh fake arrowhead reality that you saw 25 years ago when they were having to, now this wasn't a choice they were having to peddle their culture in that way in order to compete for tourist dollars uh so it was very much a matter of exploitation i, I don't want i don't think that they're to blame uh i don't think that they were exploiting themselves i think that they were surviving uh, and there's a vast difference there but if you go over there now most of that's gone. Uh, there's been a revitalization of, of that culture. Uh, now they're showing you what that, you know, uh, what that culture really is and what that culture really means. And I think that's been something uh, really incredible to watch. All right, David. So we just got a short read here. It, it's in the spirit of what you were just talking about. Um, so pick it up whenever you're ready. His mind turned instantly back to what had been troubling him over the past week. He was grieving the loss of a place and a people. It was hard enough to bury the bodies of those you love, but it was another sadness altogether to witness the death of a culture. There was the gone and the going away, and there was the after. He found it difficult to imagine what would become of this place, harder still to witness what it was already becoming. For years, he'd been trying to put his finger on the moment things started to fall apart. As silly as it sounded, sometimes he blamed it on the arrival of television. When people could see what folks had on the outside, they started to want those things for themselves. They heard the way people spoke off the mountain and slowly began to change the way they talked. Things that seemed trivial and harmless at the time looking back had signified a beginning. But even before that, before the outside began to press in, the communities were breaking apart and the people were leaving. When the timber was gone and the mountains were left as naked as the moon, families packed up and headed west to places like Oregon and Washington where the trees had yet to be touched. Jump forward 60 years and it was the same old story when the paper mills shut down, when the old plastics plant at the south end of the county left, when Daco laid off everybody in Waynesville, or when Acousta disappeared from Brevard. The jobs came on slick-tongued promises from outsiders driving fancy cars and dressed in fancy suits and left again folded in their ostrich-skin wallets when everything that could be taken was took. 
The people ran desperately behind them, waving their hands through the dust and exhaust, dusty and exhausted, out of breath, beaten and broken, and when they finally killed over and stopped, they looked around to realize they were standing in places unfamiliar, that they were lost as turned-around dogs. David, that's beautiful. It's a beautiful expression of... Um of life and, uh, you know, what you're dealing with. And I guess my question to you is, are you in a holding pattern now? Or are you out uh, passing the jug around at this moment and doing some fly fishing or are you writing seriously at the moment? Yeah, I think, I think I'm, uh, you know, I'm kind of in the heart of a novel. Uh, and at the, at the same time, it's been a very difficult novel to write. Uh, and part of the reason is, th is that the book I'm working on deals, uh, very directly with race, uh, and, and, the racial reality of this place, which largely the racial reality of this place is that it's been whitewashed. Uh, you know, where I'm sitting, I'm within 250 yards of, uh, of one of the oldest churches in Jackson County, which is an old black AME church started by 12 freed slaves. Uh, that community has, has largely been erased, uh, from this landscape, both in the stories and, and just, uh, quite literally. Uh, you know, as this place has been gentrified and people left to find jobs. But anyways, the, the novel I'm working on largely deals with that. And I think uh, it's I, it's been an incredibly difficult time to try to write a novel like that, uh, because, you know, the truth is that I've been working on this for a couple of years. Uh, and and now I'm witnessing uh, I'm witnessing a lot of what I was trying to write about take place in real time. Uh, you know, just last night, uh, the county commissioners in this county voted, uh, they voted on whether or not to remove a Confederate monument that overlooks downtown Silva, and they voted uh, four to one to keep it. Uh, and surprisingly as well, uh, you know, three of those four who voted to keep it were Democrats, and the one the one who voted to remove it was Republican. Uh, which is to say that that things aren't as politically clear as we might hope them to be. Uh, but I think it's been a difficult time to try and, uh, you know, approach a lot of these topics because it, 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 you can't ignore what's happening in the in the real life day to day. And all of the struggles and all of the battles that I was trying to write about are taking place right outside my door. Uh, and it's, and so I think it's, it's been a confusing time, uh, at the same time, I'm hope I'm, I'm really hopeful that, you know, that I can get it right because I, th I think it's an important story to tell. Well, that'll be an interesting book. I'm looking forward to that one. And, and, uh, you know, we could, we could probably talk for two more hours on monuments and what people think about them and what we should do and that kind of thing, but we don't have time for that. Uh, the book, uh, when These Mountains Burns uh, comes out today, the day of this podcast released, August the 18th. Uh, there's information in the show notes about David, links to his work, uh, photographs, uh, more information. Uh, David, I want to thank you very much for being on Charlotte Ridge's podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker. 
and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.